I started out as a poet. So poetry is sometimes about seeing what's not there. Mm. You know, what's, what's not there, re- what's not there readily. And I think anytime you're looking at life with an eye to see what's not readily apparent that, and if you're looking to find something deeper, then often you're looking for some kind of revelation. Mm. And I think all good writing has that to some degree. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather. And in this episode, I am joined by author Sherry Mandel to discuss her book, The Kabbalah of Writing, Mystical Practices for Inspiration and Creativity. Sherry talks about writing as a spiritual practice, how the aim of writing should be to surprise yourself, the importance of persistence, restriction, and finding the right structure to channel the creative flow, and she discusses the myth of closure and the value of moving with rather than moving on. Also, please be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to or view podcasts. Your support is truly appreciated. Sherry Mandel is an award-winning writer who has contributed to numerous magazines and journals, including USA Today, The Times of Israel, Hadassah Magazine, and The Jerusalem Post. She is the author of several books, including a spiritual memoir, The Blessings of a Broken Heart which won a National Jewish Book Award in 2004. She holds a master's degree in creative writing and studied Kabbalah with teachers in Jerusalem. For the past 20 years, she and her husband have directed the Kobe Mandel Foundation in Israel, whose flagship program is Camp Kobe, a therapeutic sleepaway camp for bereaved children. Sherry joins me today to discuss her latest book, The Kabbalah of Writing, Mystical Practices for Inspiration and Creativity. Sherry. Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be, I think, maybe a little bit of a different episode than some of my other episodes, just given the nature of your book. I've had a few guests on who have worked with Kabbalah from different perspectives, and you certainly include Kabbalah. It's there in the title, but the focus of your book is on writing. And I think that's where the difference is. But I have a few questions right at the start, because I think, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm okay here, that you consider writing something of a spiritual practice. Would that be right? Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, for me, I started out as a poet. So poetry is sometimes about seeing what's not there you know, what's, what's not there, re- what's not there readily. And I think anytime you're looking at life with an eye to see what's not readily apparent that, and if you're looking to find something deeper, then <clears throat> often you're looking for some kind of revelation. Mm. And I think all good writing has that in, to some degree, because <clears throat> if you're just writing what you already know, then or then you're writing like a term paper Mm. well then you're you're trying to you know compile information but well actually a good term paper should take all that information and find something new but Mm. i think that really good writing you know is a kind of discovery Mm. 
And when you have that kind of discovery, it's, you know, I live in Israel, so I, I think a little bit in Hebrew. So I might use <laughs> Hebrew words and then translate them into English, but it's like a chit chadshut, it's a renewal. Mm. And the, you know, the world is, is in a constant state of renewal. So I think that writing in that way, a lot, you align yourself with the creative energy of the universe. Mm, wonderful. Now, is that one of the things that I, a quote that I have from the book, which I think might be connected to this, especially in that idea of renewal. And I was also thinking in terms of restoration in a sense, but the quote is telling one's story becomes an essential part of the spiritual evolution of the world. And I was wondering if I could ask you to maybe expand on that a little bit. Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, this is what I wrote, <laughs> that it's an essential part of the spiritual evolution of the world. Now, I think, you know, God created each person as an individual mm. with, and everybody's so different. Everybody's mind works differently. And there must be a reason that God sent so many different types of people to the world with their own particular stories. And when you think about it, like the world is God's story. And maybe we're all like letters in God's story. Hmm. So I think the more that we manifest ourselves or fulfill our potential, then we're living up to being part of that story. And so one way that we can develop ourselves, I think, is by sharing our stories. In fact, you know, I, I, wrote, I also wrote a book on resilience called The Road to Resilience. And in that book, I talk about <clears throat> the importance of remembering. And a psychologist, Marshall Dukes, he found, because his wife was a social worker, and she was working with children, and she found that children who knew their family stories were more resilient. And especially kids who knew the ups and downs of their family stories. So I think there's something about knowing your story and sharing your story at, that allows some kind of spiritual evolution. Hmm. And it seems to me that it might also allow for one to take control of their story in some ways and not be have the story be be passive actors to a story and rather have some kind of authorship to their story if that yeah yeah no that's a really good point because so many things happen to us that are just terrible and yeah. you know if you read my book you know my son Kobe was mm -hmm. murdered when he was 13 mm -hmm. That was almost 22 years ago. His yurt site, the anniversary of his death is coming up very soon, the end of April or beginning of May. And, you know, you don't get over something like that. Right. Like, you just don't. So after Kobe was killed, <clears throat> a lot of things happened. And I told my friend, Shira Chernobyl, some of these things. And she said, you have to write. You have to start writing. Because I was a writer. She said, you have to write. And what writing does is, well, what it did for me was it gave me the ability, I don't know, to control the story, but to tell a bigger story, mm -hmm. to tell a story that wasn't just the story of the murder. 
because Kobe was killed in a cave with his friend Joseph Ishran. They were beaten to death with rocks by terrorists, by Palestinian terrorists. And so I wrote a lot about Kobe and a lot. The first year after he was killed, I had a lot of spiritual signs come into my life, especially with birds, like birds fell at my feet when I was walking in downtown Jerusalem, a dead bird, a bird hit my windshield and a bird like hit my headlights. Like all the time I was um, dealing with birds. And then I went to Florida to visit my mother and I wondered if like Kobe's soul would accompany me to Florida. And when I was sitting on the beach eating a sandwich, a bird knocked into my head at the same moment that I was thinking that. So eventually I got the idea for that book to divide it into two parts. That's the book, The um, Blessing of a Broken Heart. I divided it into two parts. I, part one was the cave and part two was the bird's nest. Mm. And what I realized was that symbolically the caves and the bird's nest were reverse images because the cave is a place of darkness and it's closed and it's very difficult to exit. And then the image of the bird's nest, which is open and light and birth. And once I had that image of the bird's nest, a friend told me who I learned with, she told me that in the Kabbalah, that it's said that God dwells in the supernal bird's nest. Mm. That's where he waits to redeem the world. So once she said that, it also kind of opened something for me. And it was not that I could, you know, I hate the word closure or, mm. you know, moving on, like none of that happened. But I think imaginatively, there was an opening mm. so that I wasn't, I wasn't stuck in the cave. Right. And I think everybody has places where they're stuck in a cave. I mean, maybe not as dramatically as we were, but that there's ways of exiting those caves through writing and through finding imagery that can transform the <clears throat> places of stuckness, if that's a word. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. And I had a note here in the book, you had commented about closure and noted that resolution might be a fiction. And I loved the line that you had where you wrote, we don't move on, we move with. Yeah, I also love that. <laughs> I think it's so true. And people yeah. just, even I would, <clears throat> today I happened to see something that somebody like a, a lecture title that somebody had written about something I had, you know, when I had given a lecture and they changed it to like, you know, moving on with Sherry Mandel. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, you did not understand a word I said. Right. Because like that whole idea of closure, it's a myth. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it harms people yeah. to think that they're just gonna close the door and move forward. Yeah. And when you move with somebody, it means they, they accompany you spiritually. Yeah. And I can say with Kobe, you know, it's 22 years after his death, he would be 35 now. Hmm. And 
I still, I don't see him as a 13 year old anymore. Mm. I see him as a third, not that I see him, right. but there is this kind of moving with like, mm. so, and, and, and I think it's really damaging to people to have this feeling that they have to move on yeah. because there's sadness and that sadness is always, it's in, you know, it's in your pocket and yeah. your, the life gets bigger. But there's always that place where you recognize that what happened to you can never be healed. Right. Right. Yeah. One of my oldest and dearest friends lost her oldest son when he was about 21, I think. He died in his sleep from a, he had an allergic reaction to a, a medication. And I think that she could relate very much to everything that you're saying. And it's been probably about 12 years or so, I think that since he passed on, but I think that she maintains sort of the same thing. I think that she sees him kind of growing older. She doesn't see him stuck and it is part of her story. And I think that what she would suggest is that by moving on is abandoning her son and abandoning a vital part of who she is, yeah. recognizing and still, caring. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you still that. have a connection. Yeah. There's yeah. a connection. There's a spiritual connection. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So I want to ask um, uh, how you began thinking in terms of writing and Kabbalah. Well, when I moved to Israel, when I first moved to Israel, I was staying with friends and they were getting divorced. So I had to leave their house and there was a program they suggested I go on. It was called leave note, the Hiba note to build and be built. Mm. And it, in there, we had lectures on Jewish philosophy and on the Hebrew Bible and Jewish history. And somebody came in and spoke about Kabbalah and he spoke about the spherot. And of course I had never heard about that. And the spherot are the 10 channels that God of God's creation, of God's creative power, basically. And they were so interesting to me that I always held on to that. And then I heard about it a little more. And I just thought it would make a great framework for writing because actually you can use that framework for any creative process, really, mm. because it's it's a framework that I call it the divine design. So, you know, if it works for God creating the world, <laughs> I think it could work for other things. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. I wanted to ask, and this is probably putting you on the spot and perhaps you just answered this question, but the, with the Sephiro, we've got, this is all part of, for the listeners and viewers, the tree of life, and there's 10 of them. And you address all of those. We won't do that in the interview because we want to encourage people to read the book. And I think one way of understanding this tree of life is, as you said, sort of the flow of creation from the divine into the lowest of the sephira is the Malkut, the world, the kingdom, the rulership. And I've heard the Sephiro described as almost like file folders, that they hold all of these different ideas. They're kind of containers for things. And what I was curious about, and something that I thought I really liked, is you made the connection between the Sephiro, which you 
refer to as a channel that you said, and you're, please correct my pronunciation. I don't know Hebrew, but you related it to the Hebrew word less, less which means to less tell us less, less a pair. Okay. Thank you. Which you said means to tell a story. So there seems to be something almost inherent in that tree of life to writing. Yeah. Yeah, there really is because spira is the same word. It has this in Hebrew words have three letter roots. Mm. So the root of that word is the same word as book or story. Mm. And it also is related to the word sapir, which is like sapphire, which mm. is like a jewel. And it's also related to the word number, mm. mispar. It's very close. But the idea that in a way, the world is a story. God is telling us a story through the world. We all have our, our own stories, but that God sends these spirot, which are like channels of energy that we can use to understand ourselves and understand the world and understand the architecture of, of the spiritual world. So before we dig into some of the Sephiroth and some of the things that you wrote about, I wanted to ask about the writing itself in the sense of you've used this for, I think, I think you said that, you know, this is a good model for like memoir writing and you mentioned mm -hmm. essays and, but I, I also think fiction and you have a lot of exercises in it, but I wanted to ask is this something that could be used for any kind of writing, you know, other forms of nonfiction writing or even more like academic essays to some extent? I'm not sure about academic essays. I have within the book a structure for academic essays, actually. Okay. Yeah. But I think it can be used for nonfiction, you know, any nonfiction. I'm not sure about fiction because fiction is more based on character, but there okay. are aspects of the book that speak to fiction. Okay. For example, Malchut that you, that you talked about, which is kind of rulership, which I think of as like voice, but mastery. So I talk about the fact that as a writer, you have control over time, hmm. you know, and you can write about one minute for 20 pages, or, or you can write about 20 years in one paragraph. Right. Right. So I think that's useful to any writer, you know, that idea and to yeah. kind of name it in a different way. And I think that the book gives a kind of creative twist mm -hmm. to things that people might already be thinking about. So, you know, in that yeah. regard, like, I hope anybody could read it and get, yeah. get a lot out of it. Yeah, I think that they could. The other thing that I was thinking about was that someone could read this and use the exercises that you provided as a kind of journaling, as a way of sort of self-exploration. Definitely. There's a ton of exercises yeah. and you can just, you know, you could use one a week and just write yeah. a few responses or write one day or five minutes or five hours. You know, it's like, yeah. there's a lot of opportunity here. I think it's an invitation to people to yeah. express themselves. Yeah. 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 I enjoy reading books on writing because I try to write sometimes, but I get a little bit blocked and you address that. I think right at the beginning, I don't think you use the language of writer's block so much, but you have an exercise about 
confronting doubt and vulner, excuse me, vulnerability, I think. And I really liked where you suggested, you know, write a letter, write a letter to your doubt and vulnerability. And as a way, I think, to shake the person out of that blockage. Yeah, it's fun to write to those parts of ourselves that are trying to stop us and block us. But I think everybody feels that like I part of the reason I wrote the book is because I've been teaching the same group of students for over 10 years, Mm. adult women. And because it's the same group, I always have to come up with something new. Mm. So I read, you know, I read a lot of writing books. (laughs) I also wrote my own books and I read a lot. So I was able to come up with, I mean, I had to come up with a lot of exercises and one thing I'm starting to realize, because like, for example, you know, I'm meeting them again tomorrow, this group, and now we're reading poetry and we're going to write according, write either according to, you know, using techniques or subject matter from the poems. But one thing that's so beautiful is that creativity is really unlimited. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I, I wanted to talk about this creativity, but I want to get us there. But before we talk about the creativity, I wanted to ask in the tree of life, you've got the top three Sephiroth. We've got Keter, Hokma, and Bina. Mm-hmm. And I want to, I have a specific question about the three, but just beginning with Keter, you say that, you know, this is a sphere that is the closest to God and most distance from us. But you also noted when discussing Keter that the will to write comes from love. And I wanted to ask you, how? How so? Well, I think there I'm sort of distinguishing between will and willpower. Right. Because people think like, I have to write. I'm going to force myself to write. I'm going to, you know, about a lot of things. I'm going to push myself. And really, the best way to motivate yourself is to kind of fall in love with writing or to feel like it's part of your life. Rather, you know, it's like dieting. If you're feeling like, oh, I can't eat sugar, I can't eat carbs, and you're miserable about it, it, then there's the opposite is to think, what do I want to eat? How do I want to nourish myself? Mm. So I think also with Keter, with will, that it doesn't have to be something that's rigid. It can be something that's expansive. And Mm. That's very important in terms of the spherot because the spherot all have aspects of expansion and contraction and then balance. Mm. And that's the motion of the universe is kind of going forward and retracting or going expanding and condensing, contracting, and then finding a temporary balance and then continuing on from there. But also, each of the spherot, even though they're named separately, they they come together in right. in our lives. Right. Like you can't just say, "Oh, I'm gonna use chesed like kindness," mm-hmm. because let's say you're a parent and you're only kind to your child. Well, you could be kind, but <laughs> you can't always be kind. Even if you feel kind, you're supposed to also. You have to have some restrictions, like they can't have all the candy they want. You have to have right. limitation right. because you have to give 
what's good for the other, not what's good for you. Like as a parent, it's much easier to just say, yes, go eat all the candy you want. I know it's like, because it's hard to restriction is a little, I think sometimes it's a little more difficult, but actually it's, it can be more valuable than the generosity because if you have generosity without limitation, it's like a water, a river that like floods its banks. You need, you need that container. Yeah. Well, and what comes to my mind immediately is editing is that when one writes, you know, it's, I think maybe it's a good idea to just let it flow, but then we have to have that boundary setting when we go back through and edit our thoughts and edit what we're saying. Right. But it's always good to keep that first draft. Yeah. I mean, I keep all my drafts because I know that eventually I'm going to want to go back to that first draft because mm-hmm. lots of times that first draft has the real energy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we edit too quickly. Mm-hmm. I- I'm guilty of this lately. Like I edit right away while I'm writing and really it's not a good idea because mm-hmm. if, it, if writing is like a river, you, you have to let it flow until it reaches like, you know, the, the sea, <laughs> like it, it reaches something bigger. Yeah. And and it's, it's not a good idea to, to stop it prematurely. But on the other hand, I mean, there are people who like reading, writing that's more experimental and associative. Mm. But I think most people prefer something that's, that's more edited and has more of a point and a theme and an ending. Mm. Yeah. You know, a beginning, middle and ending, let's right. say. Right, right, right. So you don't really discuss this. So I apologize if I am going to be putting you on the spot here. Um, uh, but the top three Sephiro, the Keter, Hesed, and Bina, I know that they are usually referred to as the supernals mm-hmm. and that there is often seen as a chasm or a gap that divides them from the lower seven Sephiro. And I think you do discuss this. But I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about how the supernals are somehow different than the lower seven in the project that you have here in using Kabbalah for writing. Yeah, I've heard that too, that they're more intellectual being in Keter and Hofma. But I have to say that I didn't really approach them that way. Mm. So... You know, they say that the other seven are more emotional. Right. So I think like Ketra, Hulkman, Bina, maybe they're like more in the head Mm. and the other ones have more to do with feeling, Mm. you know, but like I translated the Spherod into my own, (laughs) you know, into my own translation of writing. So I'm I'm not sure it works that that separation in terms of how I translated them. Okay. All right. Yeah. The way I was thinking about it while reading your book is, and maybe it's just out of habit that I was seeing them as somehow separate, but with Ketra, the will and Hukma inspiration and Bina comprehension, that those are the, the initial sparks of creativity, the inspiration. And then the lower seven was actually kind of Put, making the writing concrete, making that idea, giving it form. Yeah, that's it's a good idea, except 
And you might be right, but what I did with Bina is I really talked about how to develop an essay. Yeah. And I used this really beautiful structure that's also from Jewish mysticism called Pardes. Yes. And Pardes, it's it's like paradise, but in Hebrew, it's like an orchard. And there's a story that four rabbis went into the orchard, into the Pardes, and only one survived. Mm. You know, the other three, they couldn't withstand the, I guess, the, the difficulty and complexity of being in that place. And it's really that place of, of mysticism and, I guess, being so close to God. So, but Pardes is also an acronym mm. and it stands, it's used as a homiletic. It's used to um, talk about actually how Torah is discussed mm. and the four, it's the four levels of interpretation. Mm. So Pardes, it's the, it, the P, the P or the P, well, P in Hebrew, it stands for Pshat, which is the simple meaning of something. So the simple meaning is, let's say you're writing about a kitchen and you describe your mother's kitchen and you describe the clock that was there and the, the stove and the fridge. In fact, there's a beautiful exercise. There's a poem by Thomas Lux. I think it's called Refrigerator. And he, the poem is about what was in his mother's refrigerator. <laughs> and that is such a beautiful exercise because it's shot, but you get such a sense of like time, you know, what time, when the person lived and where. And some of those objects, they just speak out because they're so particular. And then you have remez, which is um, like a hint. Mm. What, do, what does it remind you of? Mm. So you could talk about like, let's say your mother's kitchen. You could talk about the kitchen you have in your home. And how it relates, you know, what are the differences between your your kitchen and your mother's kitchen? Or you could talk about another room in the house, or you could talk about like that poem by Thomas Lux. And it's bringing other <clears throat> comparisons in other parts of your life or other parts or other people's lives. You know, could even be talking about like the different colors of mm. the design that mm. they used for kitchens, you know, in the 50s or 60s and then in the 80s or the 2020s, you know, how different it is or not. And then the next part of Pardes is um, Dalit, which is drash, which means meaning. Mm. And when we write, often we're looking for meaning, mm. but the meaning it can't be too overt. You know, you, it, you're not trying to be too didactic or moralize. But on the other hand, you're looking for a theme. And Look, in looking for that theme, often you're doing a lot of reflection. Hmm. So you're wondering and you're imagining and you're thinking about what it is you're trying to say. What is it that you're, that you're what idea do you have about this? Hmm. Because you are trying to gather like the material so that it has some kind of coherence. And so you know what fits in and what shouldn't be there, what's mm. extraneous. And the next part of Pardes is Samech, which is, stands for Sod. And Sod is the secret. Mm. What's the secret? And we started talking about that in the beginning. Mm. What's the disclosure here? What needs, what needs to be revealed? What can you say about this 
that you didn't realize beforehand? Or what's unique to your experience or your perspective that brings you to this topic and somehow something surprises you? Yeah. Because I think that that's the aim of writing in a way is to surprise, to surprise <laughs> yourself. Yeah. Otherwise, you're, you're sort of stuck. Yeah. You know, so yeah. when you have that aha or that insight mm. or, you know, it's also the word epiphany, mm. which I believe means really in the Latin, the appearance of God. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that in a way, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for some, I mean, I'm looking for, not always, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but some kind of like jack, jack in the box, you know, where it's mm. like, oh, wow. Yeah. You're looking yeah. for that wow moment. Yeah, yeah, I, I really like that. And as you are describing the ways of using this, I found it very evocative because as you were talking, especially like the kitchen, I have items from my grandmother's kitchen that I inherited. And so it was oh, just wow. bringing up all of these, <laughs> all what these things. What do you have? Um, I, I have, well, one, I have dishes that I was raised mostly by my grandparents and my mother had a lot of these things in storage. She just, my mom kept everything. And when my parents passed away, I ended up going through all the storage. So I have the dishes that I grew up with, which I, there's something I just like, maybe it's, you know, nostalgia perhaps, but I have those, but I also have this container. I don't know what I would call it, but it's this it almost looks like it's a hand-painted container. And I think my mom just kept little odds and ends in it, but it was my grandmother's. And so I have this kind of connection of kitchen items, <laughs> you know, ancestral kitchen items, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but it was, no, I'm sorry, yeah. please go ahead. No, it's a personal, it's like a personal history. Yeah. And of course, history has the word story in it. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, those objects have their own stories to tell. And lots yeah. of times, when we're writing about something charged, yeah. then it's easier sometimes to tell the story by writing about those objects. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I, I wanted to look at some of the other uh, sephora and one in particular was Gavora. And Gavora, and we've talked about this a little bit, is about setting limits and boundaries. And I think it is, and please, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it also seems that you make this connection with the narrative structure. And one of the notes I wrote when I was looking at your book, our question was, was this how you wrote this book? It seems like the tree of life and the Sephiroth is what's providing you the structure. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Having lots of times writing is really about finding the right structure. Mm. because the structure it can limit you but it also is a catalyst mm. for writing about something in a unique way yeah. you know I, I don't think anybody has done this before maybe they have but you know so it, it's it's like it's interesting because there's a kind of synergy that happens mm. by by using a structure mm. like for example now I'm writing about moving to Israel and, you know, I became religious here, became an observant Jew. And also my children are Israeli and they married Israelis and we speak, I speak Hebrew with my, 
you know, son-in-law and daughter-in-law and my grandchildren are Israeli. And in a way, it's, it's like a different culture. Mm. Even my son, I have one son who, he was one when we came here. So lots of times I feel like, I, you know, I used to feel like he, he, he wasn't American. Mm. <laughs> he, he was like from a foreign country. <laughs> but so I was writing about our, you know, my, I don't like the word journey because I think that's like an overused word, mm. but it really is what, what I was writing about. And then I got the idea to write about it using recipes mm. for each chapter. Mm. And once I got that idea, it also gave a different like <laughs> flavor, <Yeah. laughs> use my pun, <laughs> to the book. But, you know, as a way to limit it, but it also expanded it and it mm. made it more interesting for me. It yeah. gave it a container. Mm. I think, you know, I, I went walking with my friend today who's a therapist and we were talking I told her how yesterday I had like all these avocados and they were just on the counter like 11 of them rolling around and how they they upset me <laughs> and I thought I have to put them in a bowl mm. you know and once I put them in a bowl all of a sudden they were beautiful mm. so we're always looking for a container mm. for our lives our experience I mean like what is your home your home is a container and what's your body? Your body is a container for the soul. Like there's something about finding the right container. So I think Gavura is like a container in a way because you're limiting yourself to some to some structure. Yeah, I really like the idea of how the limitation itself can lead to a kind of opening and an expansion. And a sense of discovery, I think, and allow things to flow. And I think at some point, and I could be wrong, don't you use a, the image of a river in terms of the, the river has to flow along a certain channel, I suppose, you know, there are the restrictions there. I, I, yeah, no, I just said that. I said that yeah. in the interview. Okay, I'm, sorry. I'm sure. <laughs> the caffeine's I, still I might, kicking in. <laughs> I, might, I might have written in the book. I'm not sure. But yeah, yeah it is sort of anti-intuitive because yeah, yeah. people think freedom is just doing whatever the hell you want. And yeah. actually, if you have too much freedom, it can also be constricting yeah. because you don't have a structure to express yourself. Right, right. So right. Gavora. And that sense of, of limitation, but limitation in terms of, a, you know, the, something that works, mm. you know, limitation has a pejorative sound. Right, right. But, you know, I don't know how to, what word we could use that's not like negative in a way. Yeah. But maybe yeah. containing. Yeah. Okay. Because a container, you know, like th what do therapists do? They're, they mm. contain their, you know, patients. Mm. So. I yeah. think that's the idea that you're finding a con the right container. Okay. All right. There was something else that you wrote about, which I personally found quite meaningful for me. And this is, I think, in your discussion of NETSOC, which you identify as endurance and confidence, the audacity to take a stand and express an opinion and to believe in yourself. And you give, I think, two kind of examples of how this sort of manifested for you. And one was when you were 
I think working maybe on your master's degree, where the professor said that your poem sounded like that of a 15 year old girl. But the other was you were, I think you were in a class while you were teaching creative writing and someone had really criticized your writing. And so I was wondering if you could maybe discuss that because again, this was something that was very relevant and I'll share that with you in a moment, but I was wondering if you could expand upon these criticisms and how you didn't let those set you back. You didn't let those stop you. Yeah. Well, first of all, I was in a group. I was in a writing group. Okay. I had only written nonfiction and I started Mm. writing stories Mm. and this was a fiction group and I got Mm. invited to it. And the first day I didn't speak very much. I didn't, I didn't want to criticize anybody. Mm. And so they didn't, after that group, and I think I presented something, but after that group, somebody sent an email and it was a group email, but it came to me too. And it said, I don't think that Sherry is a very good critic and I'm not sure that we should keep her in the class. And she also, yeah, I did share my story. She made, she had a lot of objections to my story. I remember saying, doesn't, don't you know that a character needs to act and not just be acted upon? And she was really, really tough on me. Mm-hmm. And I was really hurt. I thought, you know what? I'm not sure I'm going to go back, but like, I definitely have sphera of persistence. It's mm. just, I don't know why. I don't know why. Yeah. I think I think it's like a lack of shame, you no. know, <laughs> <laughs> that I'll just go and do it again. But that story that I wrote, I sent it into a contest for Moment Magazine. It's a Jewish magazine. And a few months later, I got a phone call from them. And I thought they were they wanted me to buy a subscription and I almost hung up on them and they said, no, you won first prize. And it was called the karma contest. And it was a thousand dollars and they wanted to fly me into LA. And it was Erica Jung who was the judge. So like I could have just given up. I mean, that's such a blatant example of somebody criticizing me. And you know, that happens to all of us. There's always somebody that's just the nature of the world. Like mm-hmm. I told you, we're painting the house. Right. Like we're trying to improve the house. But every time we have one step forward, it's like something breaks. There's, mm. <laughs> we got a leak on the ceiling right after the ceiling was painted. Like there's just the force of good and the force of bad. Right. And they're always, wor- they're always there, you know, mm. that expansion and contraction. Right. And I think like we, Netsach tells us, no, just stand firm. Like right. you, you have to believe in yourself and you just have to keep going forward. I, you know, I have an agent cause I, I I'm always writing and sending mm. out books, which is not a good profession, <laughs> but she said to me, what is the secret of getting published persistence? Mm. And she and I, now we today we're working on a children's book that I think I sent her six years ago. And she oh. said, we got we got 80 rejections mm. and we, we, fe- we figured out a way to make it more palatable, let's say, because mm. it's a great story, but politically it hasn't worked. So, mm-hmm. but I think everybody just has to stand up for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate that so much and I can relate to persistence 
And the thing that came to my mind, just out of my own experience, you know, I have some background in writing. I actually began in journalism, had a award from the Colorado Press Association for editorial writing. When I was at the University of Denver, I worked with a uh, author for a while, Ricky Ducournay, and always got for the most part, you know, good feedback. I do know that one, one story I gave to Ricky, she's like, oh, this was awful. And that was fine. It was pretty bad. But as I was writing my doctoral dissertation, uh, one of my committee members was just horrific and was doing things like changing wording and direct quotes and challenging very well-known ideas. And it was so frustrating. And the day that I defended my dissertation after it was done and was all successful. He came up to me and he just looked me in the eye. He's like, you know, you can't write. <gasps> and, and that's something I've internalized for a long time. Now, what was interesting, and I saw this in your story of this woman who was being very critical of you is that, the, and I think this also applies to this person, that there's a lot of sort of, you know, what the unions would call shadow projection, because I interviewed someone on the podcast, and I didn't know this at the time, but she had graduated from the same program and had the same person on her committee. And when we were talking, this is afterwards, this is where it came out. And she told me even before I said any of my experience, she's and you know, after I was done, he just told me you can't write. And so it's something that he would tell everyone and but she had this amazing observation because but, but you know what if you look at everything he's published it's all just collections of other people's work you know right and, he can't write right, he can't write and right. he's projecting yeah so I that's think, that's so destructive yeah for yeah. no reason yeah. yeah you know he's working out something from his childhood that did not yeah. sit right yeah yeah. Well, it, it just made me think of that. The person who is critical of you and your story goes on that it was like, you know, maybe that's kind of the same thing that's going on there. And the power of persistence doesn't hold us back, doesn't allow us to internalize all of those criticisms. It allows us to not give in to someone else's shadow, but move forward in our own right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah. I mean, my students, we we have this thing where we say like no disclaimers because I also, every time I share something, I'm very vulnerable and it's very difficult. And like my students are always like, I didn't really mean this. This isn't very good. I didn't write this well. And like, we're like, okay, no more disclaimers, just yeah. read it. Yeah. Like for a long time, we didn't allow any disclaimers because yeah. we, it was like, we're just going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm guilty of that too. I'm guilty of the disclaimers. I think uh, everybody is, yeah. or most people like 99%. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a good thing to try to move beyond that. So I like that you put a stop to those. I know that we're getting running out of time here, but I do have just a couple more questions for you. Okay. Uh, one is in terms of yes, and creativity, and maybe this applies to a little bit of what we were just talking about in the shadow, but you noted that every act of creativity involves a descent into chaos and darkness. And I was wondering if maybe you could elaborate on that just a little bit. And I also had another question in relation to this in terms of us being creative in a way as being like in the image of God, uh, God mm -hmm. as creator and 
us being creators as well. Yeah. Well, in a way, you know, it means that the world was created and the first thing was chaos mm -hmm. and desolation right. before the creation. So I, I think like that force of entropy <clears throat> is always there. You know, we're always battling that, like, you know, just in our own homes, right? You clean up in the morning and by the end of the day, yeah. <laughs> everything's a wreck again. And to take that kind of wreck and then create something new out of it is, is also being kind of like God, because mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what God does. Because he started out, or she or they, they started out, <laughs> let's just say God, the divine, yeah. started out with, with with chaos, with tohu and boho, which is, you know, confusion and turmoil and that the world was created from that chaos. Mm. And yeah. so anytime we create something new, there has to be a stage of uncertainty and not knowing mm. and not understanding. I mean, it's not like the, <clears throat> the physical chaos but it can be the intellectual or emotional chaos of, you know, I wrote a novel that I'm, I'm going to rewrite now, but I remember in the middle, I was like, I was like in pain because I couldn't write the next chapter <laughs> and I was trying and I'm telling you, it was weird. It like really hurt my body because I just couldn't figure out what is going to happen next. And you know, eventually I figured it out, but the, the novel still, you know, it's still in this little bit state of confusion. Hmm. But I think we're always moving from that chaos to some kind of temporary harmony, which hmm. is also one of the sphere out. Right, right. Tiferet, but that, right? Yeah, Tiferet, but Tiferet yeah. is also beauty, hmm. but that doesn't last that long. Hmm. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always like to think of chaos as pure potential. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting way to think of it. That everything is potential. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then it kind of takes us back to you know if you have that pure potential and the chaos that in order to create you have to put some structure to it. Yeah, and yeah. also you know in the Hebrew Bible, God creates the world through words mm -hmm. and through the Hebrew alphabet. Right which is the Aleph bet. So that the original creation of the world, at least according to the Torah, the Jewish Bible, is with words. Yeah. So yeah. really when we use words creatively or in a way that is where we're using like the right words and language that sort of elevates us, that mm -hmm. then we're really partnering with God. And, yeah. you know, after my son was killed, I really felt the, the quality of, of language mm. because I couldn't tolerate everyday language. You mm. know, I, I couldn't stand hearing like, how much did the electricity cost? Like not in my own home yeah. because we were too destroyed, you know, to mm -hmm. talk like that. Right. But, you know, friends like, where'd you buy that? Or when are you going mm. to the dentist? And it was like, I couldn't tolerate ordinary language and yet 
when I um, like that's when I first started reading Psalms with a friend, and it was like there was something in that language that was had a purity that I needed. So even language, you know, can um, can elevate or desecrate, right, or demean. You know, Mm. it really can. Yeah. So the one of the final questions I had for you is in connection to the word and the letters in general, because it seems to me that there are other ways of using the tree of life for writing. I mean, the tree of life is so multivalent, right? And you make some connections between the Sephiro, for example, Tiferet being the combination of Gervora and Hesed. But, you know, I was also thinking how Tiferet is directly below Keter, you know, on the middle pillar there. And so there's mm-hmm. that connection. And I think that traditionally there are 22 paths that connect the Sephira that are connected to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so the question I wanted to ask for you is given that, and there are other ways of thinking about this. Do you have any plans for a sequel? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, maybe, but I don't know what it will be. Yeah. Okay. Uh, But yeah, I, I know that it it's also related to the letters, yeah. but it's so complicated right. for <clears throat> for even scholars. Like right. you know, people disagree about who wrote it, when it was written, what it's mm. comprised of, and the actual language of the Kabbalah. Mm. You know, which I believe is Aramaic, is also mm. very difficult. So, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not a Kabbalah scholar. Right, I really. Right use the structure of the sphero which is something that i think is very accessible Mm -hmm. and very translatable for for everybody in you know in any situation but do you have ideas for a sequel for me well other than that well the yeah one of the 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 final question i had is that you follow the path of creation right from keter down to malkut but i know in kabbalah there's also a tradition of starting a malkut and going back up and right. I was curious if that could also be applicable to the writing process. I'm sure it can be. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's no one way of writing right, right, and right. there's no one solution. And so definitely right. lots of times anyway, I remember when I used to write papers for college, lots of times I would start at the ending mm-hmm. and then move to the beginning. Right. But and I know like uh, there are fiction writers like Ann Patchett. I, I read something she wrote that she said she has to know the ending mm. before she starts right. the writing. So I think there's all different directions. Yeah. And, you know, I want to think more about because I think of Malchut as more, you know, voice, really. Mm. That's, how, mm. that's how I think of it, because it's like your rulership, your ownership, your authority. So yeah, you could start with voice. And in fact, it's a very good way to start because that's what people are really reading for. They're really reading to connect with with an author and a voice. So yeah, you definitely could. I definitely could have done the book the other way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I found it so rich. What? Yeah, I found it so rich, uh, the, oh, the approach, you. and it made me want to start doing some of the exercises. So I, I plan on using the book. So I know that we are out of time. So let me ask you, 
Um, you've mentioned some books that you're working on, and I always want to ask, well, what's next for you? What do you have coming up? Yeah, so, well, I'm working on a children, a few children's books, okay. children's picture books, but this book that I'm working on, it's called the Medi the, A Mediterranean Diet from, mm. from Mac and Cheese to Matbucha, <laughs> which is, <laughs> Matbucha is like, you know, a dish that we eat in Israel that you have to spend a lot of, you, you peel the tomatoes mm. and you let them simmer for a few hours. I mean, it's very easy. It's just with garlic and oil. But I started out with mac and cheese. That was what I was going <laughs> <laughs> So it's about, you know, changing cultures, really. Okay, and wonderful. All right. And do you have a website or someplace where people can go to find out more about you and your work? Yeah, so... My website is on the foundation. We have a foundation in memory of my son because okay. we we run camps and a lot of activities for bereaved families and children. So it's Kobe Mandel, K-O-B-Y-M-A-N-D-E-L-L slash, I don't know if it's a frontward or backward slash. I can't figure that out. Probably backward. And then it's Sherry, S-H-E-R-R-I dash Mandel, M-A-N-D-E-L-L. But I'm also on Facebook. Okay. Sherry Mandel, and I'm on Instagram, Sherry Mandel 10. Okay. So people can reach me in any of those places. Okay. I'll put links for the Kobe Mandel. Um, uh, and, Sherry uh, Mandel. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, for the, yeah, for that and for Facebook and Instagram and links for the book as well. Great. Uh, so, That's terrific. Okay. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed speaking with you and I look forward to doing some of the practices in the book. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. You made me very happy. Thank you so much for the interview, Nick. Okay. Well, thank you. Great. And that's a wrap on episode 77 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience or view this on Spotify. If you like what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio and would like to support my work, please consider becoming a patron. I spend quite a bit of time on each podcast episode, and I have plans for growing the YouTube channel. Really, I do. Um, but I can't do that without some additional financial support. Right now, this is entirely a labor of love, and I hope that if you find any value in what I do here on Rebel Spirit Radio... Um, that you can help me in continuing this work. You can find a link for the Patreon in the show notes or video description. And of course, if you would prefer to just make a one-time donation, you can still do so via PayPal. The link for that is also in the video description or show notes. Please know I will be tremendously grateful for any support that you can provide. Another way that you can help with the podcast is to share it with friends, family, and on social media. Um, that really is one of the best ways that you can help uh, support the podcast and help me grow my audience. As I mentioned before, many times now, I often kid that I'm here in Southern California doing missionary work uh, in regards to religion, spirituality, and ecology, psychedelics, and consciousness and how all of this can help us heal humanity's relationship with the sacred earth. So if you feel moved by the rebel spirit, and I hope you do, please, by all means, help me share the good news. Also, if you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. 
especially if you listen on Apple. Uh, if you have a moment to spare, please consider posting a short but positive review. And please subscribe. For those viewing on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to or watching Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.